Good morning, folks. This is Dr. Dennis, the Wellness Doc, bringing you all things healthy for your mind, body, and soul. Welcome to my podcast entitled Comprehensive Health and Wellness. Let's get right to it. We have a very big show today where I will be sharing my journey from amateur hockey player to the big time, the big leagues, and all of the incredible people that I had met uh, during this journey. Also, I'd like to speak about a new acquaintance who is a collegiate long-distance runner, and we had a little chat this morning. Her name is Cabrina, and she shared part of her journey from where she was in high school to now moving forwards to the Division I collegiate level. So we have a lot here today, and I hope that you enjoy it. Okay, let's get right to it. Well, I had the opportunity of starting to play roller hockey at 10 years old. And in New York City, more specifically Jackson Heights, New York, in Queens, uh, very close to the LaGuardia Airport, for those of you who fly a lot. And unlike here in New Jersey, the parks that I grew up with did not have any grass or trees. It was concrete. We called it the concrete jungle. And I feel very blessed because even as a 10-year-old, I was exposed to gentlemen who were had tremendous skills. And these guys were in their 20s. And one of them was... He was actually drafted to the NHL, and he chose to take care of his uh, father who was sick at the time, which I think he's a real hero for doing that. And this guy was a beast, you know, 6'2", 215, ripped to the bone, and had a shot that literally would go through the net. Goalies were scared to face his shot, and then on top of that, he was just mean and focused and all the things that you would want to honestly make it to the NHL. And he was one of, he was my first mentor and it was awesome being around him. It got so popular that on a Saturday and Sunday, we literally had a waiting list of guys who wanted to play and all levels, all ages it was awesome. So as, as the neighborhood uh, heard more about it and it became more popular, of course, the level of skill started moving upwards. And it was highly competitive for a non-league. Um, it wasn't a tournament, but on Saturdays, it really was because I don't know how many games that we played. And so when I hit about 13, 14, uh, my skill level went up tremendously because of who I played against. And I was ready to actually start playing ice hockey. Unfortunately, 
we really didn't have the funds. You know, my dad uh, was a single dad raising three children, a 10-year-old, 7-year-old, and basically a newborn baby. Uh, My mom had just passed. So that was a lot for him. And, um, you know, he told me straight out. He said, look, if you want to play ice, we can't do it right now. Maybe someday you can get a job where you'll be able to afford it. I said, okay. So I did have a dream about there was a possibility for roller hockey to uh, be a sport in the Pan American Games, which is very similar to the Olympics. And unfortunately, at that time, it didn't come to fruition. So I just kept, you know, trying to get better every day. And I was always watching and studying certain players, Mario Lemieux, Wayne Gretzky, totally two different players, Mark Messier, who I call him, I nicknamed him Cyborg because he truly was like half man, half machine, and similar to uh, my first mentor, uh, Steve, uh, same type of mean and nasty, yet very focused and could score uh, at any time. So these are the gentlemen that I studied. Uh, There was another guy. His name was uh, Mike Gardner, who uh, I think up to a few years ago, he still had the fastest skater in the uh, all-star game um, competition. And that was, I think he had the record for like, it was over 20 years. Just an unbelievable skater. So, you know... It's interesting how at that time there really wasn't any access to computers. And so I know for myself, I watched a lot of video and a lot of TV. And I always made sure that I was able to watch someone at that level so that I could learn. So moving forwards, fast forwards, I did get a job at uh, Skyrink in Manhattan, which initially was in the Citicorp building on the uh, west side on between 9th and 10th Avenue and 33rd Street. So very close to Madison Square Garden. And it was on the 16th floor, you know, pretty awesome. Never saw that before. It was very unique and basically started from the bottom. You know, I was a skate guard and then I was able to start teaching uh, different types of clinics for children and that was awesome. And that's where the dream truly began of saying, you know what, I want to be a professional ice hockey player. And if you saw me at the time, folks, the majority of you would say there's no way that would ever happen. And the gentleman that I got to see that played at that rink was just, it was a mecca of talent. We had... Division One players from Boston University, Boston College, which are in the upper ranks for uh, collegiate ice hockey. We had guys coming down from Yale and Harvard, and I mean, the list went on and on. And then I got introduced to the Mullen brothers, uh, Brian and Joey Mullen, who played in the NHL for many years. And to have that, to be face-to-face with them and to speak with them and ask them straight out, hey, you know, what do you think? And each one would give me a new set of things to work on. And it was great. 
Um, of course, as I started to get a little better, I wanted to play against better competition, and I wasn't allowed because uh, I wasn't good enough, and that that added a lot of fuel. And as a skate guard, I got to meet Roger Bear, who was with the New York Rangers. He's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Just a great guy. And he came up to me with his French accent and said, Oh, excuse me, sir. Uh, are you a Division I uh, collegiate uh, hockey? And I, I was looking around, like over each shoulder, and he kind of grabbed my arm. And it was pretty hilarious because we we were similar in stature. He, he was a little bit shorter, but... He was almost as, as wide as, as he was tall, you know, just built like, you know, kind of like a bulldog. And uh, what a kind man. And, and for many years, I'm not sure if he still does, but he was responsible for community interaction with the New York Rangers, which his personality was, you know, just that's what he felt that his purpose was, was to serve others. And what a kind heart. So he basically said, um, can I give you a free, um, training session? (laughs) So here I am in shock because I finally recognized who he was and I got to train with a hockey hall of famer. And he basically at the end of it said, I know that you can make it to at least uh, division one college. And I'd only been skating for about a year and a half at that time. So that was a lot. I took it to heart. And along the way, I've met other amazing, you know, high level, high skill level uh, hockey players. And I did meet a incredible competitive figure skater. Uh, I went out to Switzerland and there was a tournament out there. It was, it was an amateur tournament, but I was able to play against uh, Olympic level and professional level hockey players and that was just incredible anyway I met this um, really nice uh, figure skater in Switzerland and uh, I guess she was kind of a cougar I was 22 and I think she was about 27 28 (laughs) and um, she was very encouraging and she said I think that you can make it I think you can make it to the pros so this journey was just like living my dream every day. Uh, I was working initially as a bike messenger in Manhattan. I don't know if you all are familiar. I don't even know if they still have them anymore. But basically, you know, I had a kind of like a knapsack and had to deliver various pieces of uh, mail and objects and things like this throughout Manhattan. And you would think for, you know, an area that's only, I don't know, what is it, 12 miles long that, you know, it's easily accessible. However, when, you know, you pick up a package and this was, um, let's just say in Upper Harlem by uh, Columbia University. And then at the time I had to deliver it down by the World Trade Center. I mean, that's that's a trek. And I did it because I knew it would get me in ridiculous shape. And it actually did. We, my buddies and I, as bike messengers, were doing at least 40 miles a day, and the majority of it was sprinting. So that was perfect for ice hockey, that explosive 
uh, movements that we need. And then, of course, the overall endurance um, was key. So, you know, to be a pro hockey player, you have to have both. You have to have the anaerobic and aerobic conditioning down pat. And so it was just awesome. And uh, I almost died a few times. Uh, (laughs) Got hit. And, you know, by God's grace, I'm still here. And it was just a great journey. And it it kept me out of trouble. Um, Never drank, never smoked, never did drugs. Because I was so focused on the goal. And honestly, it was roughly eight hours a day uh, on ice. Uh, was about four to five hours, and then off ice was all the other strength conditioning, uh, martial arts, stretching, swimming, uh, cross-training in the pool, which I'm actually writing my first book coming up uh, in the next several weeks. It's called H2O for Life, and uh, I'll be sharing the tremendous benefits of uh, working out and exercising in the water. So that's... uh, that's a whole nother podcast that we can talk about for a while. So getting back to this journey, um, unfortunately, everyone around me uh, basically said I'd never make it. And that just really created tremendous rage because my father did the same growing up. Uh, I never got, hey, Dennis, great job. Or... I believe in you. Never got any of that. I got the opposite. So I'll have to be honest with you folks. At 55, I still have a little bit of an edge there because of the doubters and the haters. And I just want to clarify that I did forgive my father from all of that. Um, He had uh, substance abuse problems with alcohol, and I'm sure there were other things there. And uh, he never got the help that he needed. However, I have, and just as a sidebar to this, and and we can talk more about this in another podcast, I am a PTSD survivor. I did not know that I had this condition, but it explains so many actions that I've taken in my life, um, things that are triggers, even to this day, and it's, I thank God every day for the uh, multiple, uh, holistic, uh, counselors that I have met and that have helped me. I have one now and her name is Tony. She's amazing. And she customizes every session. And that's one of the keys. Look, folks, there's a plethora of holistic interventions and treatments out there that, have been shown to be effective, obviously research-based, but without the proper facilitator who customizes it, it's not really worth a whole lot. And, you know, I want to make this clear out there that whoever has severe anxiety, depression, trauma, and trauma comes from many, many sources, uh, PTSD, I want to tell you all that there's hope and you can move forwards. And I, and I've shared this in, in other podcasts and videos, but you are the determining factor. How badly do you want to move forwards and how much courage and strength do you have to face the things that have been in your brain for a long time that have put chains 
inside of your mind to stop you from moving forwards. And I've been there and it's work every single day. Uh, I've, I've spoken in, in some of the other podcasts about the specific techniques that I use and uh, feel free to uh, examine those. And if you all out there would like me to, to do another podcast on these different techniques, please let me know. I'd be more than happy to do it. So getting back to this journey, my dreams at night were so vivid and this is one of the components that I spoke about in the, uh, barely touched in the YouTube video or earlier today, just as an introduction, but the visualization part for me, that translates into dreams because it's hard sometimes during the day to see where you want to be, how you want to perform. It is possible. And and as I developed, I was able to do that more often, but it started out with dreams, especially at night. And it would, they were so real. I mean, to actually feel the, the applause of the crowd or, you know, skating into the, you know, one of these NHL rinks, professional level rinks where there's 10, 20, 30,000 people. There's almost no words for that, but to feel it before ever even doing that was just phenomenal. And to get this feedback from the several mentors that I've had who, who had what I wanted. And and I'm going to segue into the second component here is how do you make your dream a reality from the path from amateur to pros to the professional level. And this is the second one is the second component is you have to immerse yourself into whatever sport you're doing 100, 1 million, 1000 percent, 24, 7, 365, the focus, the focus has to be there because when it's there, other doors open up. Other doors of opportunity open up and your hunger, your desire, your, your, your passion seeps through the pores of your skin. You don't even have to say anything. People see it. They feel it when you participate in, in your sport. It's different than the rest. Anyone can play recreationally. Anyone could even play um, in a league, but but to truly excel and then have the attitude that you could always you always have things to work on and you could always be better is something that very few have. And I don't know the exact percentage, but it's very low. It's something like one in a hundred thousand ever make it to the professional level or the Olympic level in any sport. And here's the caveat to that. Even if you get scouted and you make it, there's no guarantee. Do you know how many athletes get hurt right before signing a big contract or right at the beginning of their contract and some of them are devastating where these injuries you're done you're done for life like 
your baby brand new career is done. And some of these athletes are in their 20s. And I'm going to get right into that, but I just want to get to the third step that I want to share here, the third component, and that is you need to be very cognizant of who you hang around. In other words, who are you getting advice from? Are you getting advice from, let's say you want to be a professional athlete in whatever sport it is, from a former professional athlete, or are you getting it from, sorry, Joe Schmo that, you know, that drinks often and is undisciplined in their lives and come on it's like but here we go and then in our society everybody has an opinion and I always say this you have to look at the source because everyone has an opinion like a nose but and I'm using that there's a lot of other terms that I could use but I'm being clean here and my point is this if someone's not an expert in something and someone has not achieved what you want to do, then how can their advice be reliable, valid, or true? That's the bottom line. And people can have the best intentions. You know, my father was scared for me. I understand now. He was scared because he had a dream of being an aeronautical engineer and I'm sure he had the talent, but he let someone talk him out of his dream, and there's nothing wrong with being a bus mechanic for the uh, New York City Transit Authority at all, but someone directed him away from his dream, and the positives about my father were that he was very outgoing, he loved people, and you could see that, and he truly inherently was business minded and he could probably sell anything. And that's, that was just his nature. Um, but he let someone talk him out of it. And for me, that was never going to happen. Um, I'm half Turkish and half Greek. I am extremely stubborn and it has saved me from making a lot of bad decisions in my life. Um, you know, in high school, quite a few people start to experiment with alcohol, with, um, with marijuana and other things out there, different forms of drugs that I chose not to. And the people that were engaged in this, I stayed away from. So that's my whole point with this is, you know, there are people that have titles, even in sports that are coaches, but not every coach is effective. Not every coach, sorry, is giving the information that can can customize it for you. It doesn't work that way. Um, so, you know, that that's the third component that I wanted to share is you have to be careful where you get information from, especially as an athlete, because, you know, like I said, everyone has an opinion like a nose. Uh, I chose to listen to uh, the gentleman who you know, played at very high level division one, uh, Ivy league school, then played professional in Europe. Another gentleman was a big dude, you know, 230 pounds, but can move, had a hundred mile an hour slap shot. Um, these are the people that I listen to, which it's interesting when, when us is, when we as humans get the information that we need, that's very customized. 
we all flourish in, in whatever it is. And so getting back to injuries, okay, I want to share a little bit about a new acquaintance. Her name is Cabrina with a K, just a, an incredible young lady who is authentic and honest and very humble. Her journey, and this is a quick summary, and we spoke this morning at LA Fitness, and she basically shared that she was a long-distance cross-country runner, had multiple injuries, and I'm sure a lot of you out there can relate to this, and I hate to say this, but for females... The incidence of stress factors, especially in runners, is much higher than men, and there are many variables um, in that equation, but we're, we're not going to uh, discuss that right now. So she was kind enough to share with me that during her career in high school, she suffered a stress fracture to her left shin, and Here's, which which is not uncommon, but with that, and this is also uncommon, not uncommon, is that because she, she had tremendous skill, she was pushed by the coaches beyond her physical capacity, which resulted in other injuries, and this happens. And I'm not blaming the coaches per se, however... They should know better than that. And and this is what we spoke about is when someone is talented in anything, you can't push them. In other words, you can't, you can only run a sprint for so long, right? It's a limited amount of time. So if you push and push and push and push, and then someone is either, let's say they get sick, they get a cold, or in this case, an injury, how can they continue to perform at 100%? to get you what you want, which I think is extremely selfish, a win. So what point are you willing, and I'm talking to all coaches out there, at what point are you willing to jeopardize the well-being of your athletes so that your team can win? That is such selfish, short-term thinking, which is not the thinking of a champion. This is not the thinking of teams that are successful or businesses that are successful or people that are successful in life. Short term doesn't work. There isn't any, you know, quick fix doesn't work that way. But I have seen this over and over and over again. And, you know, you might say, well, you know, how do you know this? Well, I started my career in physical therapy. However, I also have a degree and I got licensed in athletic training. So I spent some time there and I got to see the behind the scenes of what really goes on in quite a few division one colleges where the students are literally there on scholarship to participate. And the majority that I've seen are not training properly for whatever sport it is, both on the field and in the gym. And I have seen this change over the past few years of, you know, more is better. The longer you train is better. 
this is not true. You know, heavier weights are better. No, this is not even close to the truth. Because I want to share with you that during my journey from being an amateur to the pros, when I was amateur, the, the practices were three or four hours long. What was the intensity level? Eh, scale one to ten, maybe a four. When I made it to the pros, it was 90 minutes and the intensity level was 11 out of 10 all the time with video analysis, with coaches breaking down the video. I mean, it goes on and on. When you make it to the pro level, it's a whole different ball game. And it's about constant testing and analysis, testing and analysis. So getting back to the injuries for my new acquaintance slash friend, Cabrina, the stress fracture in her left shin. Then she had uh, some other fractures in her foot. Same thing on the left side. And, you know, it's interesting to me, which is really very predictable, is that she did it again on the left side, uh, the left shin, which, you know, we can go into the whole, um, diagnostics of, of injuries and probability, but there's going to be a high probability. If you do it once, you're going to do it again, especially where it's, uh, an overuse type syndrome, which cross country running can turn into if, um, you know, that you're not training properly and also, or if you push, push too hard by your coaches, but also it's the athletic performance testing, which is key. The injury prevention testing, which at that level, especially, uh, someone like Cabrina, she should have been tested every month. And this is not being done in the majority, especially of high schools. Not yet. They should be done because the testing is relatively easy to do. And, that's one of my fortes is being able to teach um, the physical education teachers and the coaches uh, this type of testing. Not so much to diagnose and analyze, but to just do the testing. And then my job is to analyze. And that's what I do is coordinate with coaches on how to get an athlete to perform optimally, but also protect them and prevent injuries. And that's a very fine balance. So getting back to it, And then she said that she also hurt her right shin, which makes sense. So, you know, it's interesting because there's a whole psychology with injuries. And I will save that for the next podcast this week. Um, So today is uh, Monday, the 23rd. The 23rd, just want to make sure. Um... Yeah, I think today's the 23rd. So tomorrow, uh, not not 24th, and then 25th. So Wednesday's show that I'm going to be doing is on the psychology of um, experiencing an injury and what really goes on. Because she also shared some things that I can definitely relate to. And I'm sure there are millions of athletes that can relate to this. Um And this really delves deep into sports psychology, um, developmental psych. There's there's many, many components to this. And and again, we will save that for the show on uh, Wednesday. So getting back to Cabrina, you know, you could tell that she is someone who gives it 100% all the time. And also trying to 
And we do this as athletes, right? We want our coaches to be proud of us, to, you know, say, hey, you did a good job. And that just is pretty inherent in, I would say, athletes across the board. Um, But when that trust, because it, it truly takes a high level of trust when we put our our lives in essence in the hands of a coach and that trust is broken um, it's really it's quite challenging to ever trust another coach again and I didn't experience that as a hockey player however initially as an amateur there wasn't um there weren't finances involved so i wasn't getting paid i didn't get a scholarship to go to college and so that's a whole different ball game and there there is a financial component when a school gives an athlete a scholarship because they're getting something from it i'm sorry i'm speaking the truth here they're not doing it out of the kindness of their heart with television and commercials when i was getting my athletic training degree in 2001 was when i when i finished uh we got to see the behind the scenes of the division one uh football uh colleges and there's quite a bit of money involved uh to the schools when in these uh rose bowls and all these big time bowls for the exposure on tv so it's sad that it has transformed into uh financial gains and exposure but that's the name of the game just like with i would i would the analogy i would make is even with the um olympics especially for ice hockey it went from amateurs when we competed against the pros you know the 1980 olympics against the russians who were the best of the best for years and years and slowly over time the amateurs were replaced with professionals and we didn't see the same results because what i'm seeing is the hunger wasn't there i mean if you're already a millionaire and you're 28 years old what's your What's your motivating factor to perform well in the Olympics where you're not getting paid? So there's a whole psychology behind that. But I want to thank Cabrina for sharing that today. I'm looking forward to learning more about her journey and definitely providing uh, the necessary uh, research-based techniques for all out there for athletes, non-athletes who are just active and and may play sports for fun recreationally. But there are certain things that we can do across the board. It doesn't matter your age and it really doesn't even matter what the goal is. But there are certain techniques that can be done that can uh, propel you to where you want to be. So I'm going to leave you all with that for today. And it was definitely a pleasure speaking with you. And I'm sure that these three techniques and components that I shared will definitely be helpful. And I hope that the stories also were relatable, where maybe 
some of you out there have had your own personal journey and I'd love to hear from you all and who knows maybe you can be on the show and help to inspire others so this is Dr. Dennis as usual providing hope inspiration support and specialized knowledge so that you can optimize your level of performance in your lives God bless take care (laughs) 